Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Let's dive in. Look, everything's been built. If you go to GitHub, you can fork off these chunks of code that have already been pre-made for you. So there's a lot of wasted time and wasted energy, kind of the idea of rebuilding things over and over again you've already built. And they're not really organized in a way with other legacy platforms that you can say, hey, I like Marshall's homepage and I like the form he uses to get people to sign up for the deep end. If he did such a good job researching that, I'd love to use that, give him credit for it, social and monetary potentially, right? And then use that along the way and help my people understand uh, when they sign up that not only did I do a good job remixing this, but that Marshall had something to do with this as well. At the deep end, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in depth into ideas that inspire people to build. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of internet communities, creator tools, climate tech, longevity, and much, much more. There are no experts in uncharted territory, only pioneers. The Deep End invites these trailblazers to turn their experiences into the knowledge and ideas that others need to start their own founder odysseys. Recently, many of our guests have been pioneers in the Web3 space. Patrick Rivera provided a particularly helpful framework for understanding the different eras of the web when he was on the show. From him and other guests like Cooper Turley, we've learned that Web3 is special because it enables users to have ownership of their different networks. Today's guests share the optimism of our past guests, but also note that Web3 is still in its infancy and is very much a work in progress. Those guests, Clark and Jeff McKinnon, are building what they call the reusable web. Like past guest Pierre Richardson, they believe that the internet works best when it's open sourced and composable. To that end, yesterday they launched the.com to make it simple for website builders to create, remix, and launch websites while getting paid and earning credit for their work. This is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done, not merely because they are on deck alums who participate in the on deck scale program. I was struck by the balance that the McKinnon brothers are able to find between practicality and optimism. I'll be following along closely as they strive to live up to the ubiquity of their new domain. Jeff, Clark, welcome to The Deep End. Thanks for having us. Let's start really top level on your website, there's a quote, the internet is a continuous work in progress. What do you mean by that? And then what does that imply about what you're building with the.com? We've got two guests here. Everyone knows this is a little difficult. So let's just default to whichever you wants to pick up the question first. And if you have something to add, just jump on and I'll wait and be patient. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jeff and I spent a a uh, ton of time building websites. And so I think it's something that we learned over those years. Um, but it's kind of like a personal ethos that we've had for a long time that we believe uh, that the internet's a continuous work in progress. And uh, I think a lot of our products built around that, that concept. Um, and I'm sure as we discuss this more and more, you'll hear how that kind of comes out. But yeah, it's been kind of a guiding North Star for us for a long time. 
yeah, we really see the different pieces of the internet moving forward and being worked on together. And that's kind of like the continuous piece that we're talking about. Let's get to the most obvious question here. The, why, (laughs) how, why, all the most (laughs) obvious questions here. Yeah, it, it's kind of a crazy story. Um, so we didn't start with that name, obviously. Um, at the time, we were in like a 200 square foot uh, little office doing services work. We're building sites for other people. But it, it, was, it was pretty wild. So we started the business in Boulder, Colorado. And I don't know if you've ever been there um, or if anyone listening has ever been there. But the main street's called Pearl Street. It's an awesome little downtown area. And there's this great uh, old auto body garage, um, that had been abandoned for like 20 years. And Jeff and I are like, that'd be the perfect spot for an agency. Um, so lo and behold, we couldn't get, uh, in contact with the owner. They were kind of like underground. Uh, so we went through a couple channels, ended up finding out who it was and reached out to that person to start renting the place. Um, it ended up becoming like a pretty solid relationship. We ended up buying the property and, uh, the guy goes, you know, I've been saving, this domain for the perfect company. And I think you guys are it. Um, and he told us what it was and, uh, obviously we fell in love with it and it's been, you know, another one of those things that we've had to live up to, which has been great for us as a team. Um, you know, when we were small and we, we didn't know what we were going to end up building, um, you know, it really helped guide us towards acting like a bigger company. Yeah, the.com is really a URL that, like Clark said, you kind of strive to. You have to be that great of a company to work under the name the.com. I like the setting up of expectations there as being important, but how does how does SEO and how does just brand building in general work? Jackson, the producer and I were just talking. We we're like, yeah, wait, how he, Jackson had this great quote. He was like, it's actually kind of difficult to search for the company on Google. So how do you just think of that part there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that uh, that we're learning more about as we continue to use the the brand name. I think the best part about it is it's really easy to remember. And I think you know when you're operating in an industry that's got a ton of players and a lot of baggage, it's just really nice to stand out out from the crowd. Um, and so you know from that standpoint, we're uh, we're pretty findable findable on Google, and a lot of people actually end up on our URL just out of curiosity. And so we get, you know, a lot of people signing up for the wait list from there. Yeah. Branded, branded search is key with the .com. Yep. Now that I've pushed you all on your branding <laughs> and naming, let's actually talk about what you're actually doing here. So what is the.com you you on the website and your copy on the release you describe it as emerging from just years of really agonizing website builds i'm the type of person who's been lucky enough not to have to interface with any of those things i'd probably go to people like you in a previous life what was so agonizing about this process and then how did that lead you all into building this specific product and company yeah, I mean, the people who build websites know exactly what we're talking about. Um, but we, we spent years and years building sites for other people um, and for our own startups that we we're working on. And really, you know, there's, there's pain points through the build process, like with the platform that you're using. Um, there's pain points with the people who are working on the site alongside you, the other contributors, timelines. There's just a ton of friction. Um, and a lot of it comes back to how much access the contributor has to working on the site. 
and kind of that composability, like how easy is it to make and build, um, to tweak and experiment and play? And how easy is it, you know, after you launch to hand off to the person that you're working with and, uh, and allow them to, to contribute to the site. So all that stuff kind of baked together. It's like all these overlapping levels of complexity. Uh, it just made it really, really frustrating. And so what we're doing here uh, at the .com is uh, we've created a, a, a community oriented website building experience. And I think, you know, we're, we're the really, really the first of its kind to do that. Um, the focus has been around making the web a lot more ownable and a lot more composable. And this kind of comes back to what you brought up in the beginning. Um, but we're really excited to, uh, to be sharing that with the world. And, and there's a lot that, that the platform is bringing to the table. Yeah. And like Clark said, in terms of composability and editability, there wasn't a lot of range for people with different technical levels or skill sets to edit across one kind of like uniform area. Um, and that's where we kind of turned it more into like a framework, we would say. And in that framework, it allows people to kind of break things down into cells and blocks and a few other of these kind of like atomic pieces that make it a lot more granular to edit. And that brings a lot of new types of ethos pieces into the platform, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. This is a good conversation because I've got five different areas I could go into. So in no particular order, help us understand who the target market for this product is in the sense that everyone knows that they need a website. But when you're talking about this, you say things like for you hand it over. So, so is this aimed at high level folks like yourself who are working with people and they're coming to you with a vision? Who, who, who is this a different market than the person who hears a Squarespace ad on a podcast and says, Hey, I should have marshallkozloff.com. I could set that up in two seconds. I don't imagine myself thinking of the word playful as being relevant in that context. So just help us understand the vision part there. Yeah, absolutely. I think we wanted to create more of an ecosystem so that different, these new people coming into the web kind of contributor space uh, as more people become more technical, I think, like you said, the, the market that we're going and the, the platform's really focused towards is the actual group of what we're kind of dubbing web people. And those people are, they've built sites in the past and they're building sites for other people, but it doesn't really have to get locked down into one specific group. Generally, as a company or a business, you're not building your own site. Your example of marshall.com isn't going to be built by yourself necessarily, right? Oh, it's not going to be hundred percent. Not going to be me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So kind of rule of thumb for us is like most of our customers are people who've built like three sites before in the past. So actively creating on the web and are people who understand how websites work uh, at a base level. I'm really interested in your articulation of web people who <laughs> are increasingly technical because those terms mean mean a bunch of different things right so does that just mean that your default internet user is by definition becoming more technical as the internet continues to expand are you referring to folks who are coders are you referring to people using no code tools how, how do the two of you just conceive of this initial market you're focused on yeah, it's a, it's a great question um you know when we were doing our services business we we were building a lot of variety uh, for our website creations. And, uh, and on that same front, I think we're really focused on, on helping a relatively large variety of people build 
online as well. Um, you know, when, when you talk about web people, there's definitely a lot of subcategories that go into that. Um, and I think it's important to note what you said in the beginning that younger generations are getting a lot more tech savvy. I think there's this huge, uh, you know, middle group in between your high end engineer and your, I don't know anything about the internet. Um, there's a large group in between those two points that have a really good understanding of how the web works and they want to create new things. They want to push the limits. They want to uh, experiment and play around with new concepts online. And they also want to share their story and, and be able to curate and create the way that they want online. And I don't think there's been a great platform yet that's really enabled that group. Um, and I honestly think that's the largest group that exists out there. Yeah, and a really interesting point towards that is as we see a lot of these people becoming of age into the working groups, as well as their technical abilities growing, you see that they want to start telling their story in a more unique way, in a more kind of like personalized way. And I think we're starting to see a lot of these people moving off the super centralized platforms like Facebook and Instagram when they're looking to create their own personal brands to sell products. You see people like David Dobrik and other kind of like famous TikTok influencers actually going out there and saying, hey, I'm going to spin up a company in one day. And I'm going to sell puzzles or whatever you know David does. So those types of people are kind of spanning a lot wider range today, and it's only going to get larger. Uh, I love that example because this is where we need you to treat me like an idiot and just really make this hyper concrete for me and the brilliant listeners who are tuning into the show right now. You referred to earlier blocks, atomic units. You obviously were spending a lot of time when you're running services businesses and you know agencies actually building these websites. So how are these blocks and these processes you're describing? How are they different than the legacy world that you grew up in? So I guess basically the best way to answer this question would be describe the way that you would build a website for David Dobrik back under the legacy tools and then give us some good examples of how you could use the.com to actually build something more playful, more interesting. I think we all see those folks who have really unique websites and think, wow, like I need something like that. So I'd love to hear your answers on that. Yeah, I mean, I think for if you were looking at the example of David uh, Dobrik's build, you know, a, a legacy approach would be that he has a new business or an idea that he wants to get out there. So he goes to uh, a platform like one of the legacy ones that exist, and they go and pick out some type of template that's kind of close to what they're trying to build. Um, they spin up that template, remove the stuff that they don't want. And uh, through a lot of the restrictions and the ceilings that occur in these legacy platforms, you kind of end up with something halfway in between what you were expecting to get and what you were actually able to put out. Um, and usually through some of the frustrations and friction that happens in the website build process with these legacy tools, um, you kind of just say screw it and, uh, and kind of launch with what you can. And, you know, in, in our ecosystem, things will happen a hell of a lot differently. So, you know, when we were helping other people build sites, the first thing that we'd ask is, what other sites do you like? And I think that's the, probably the most common question when you're starting to build something. And so you go out and look for examples. Um, well, we wanted to bake that experience right into the, the build process. So what we're doing is we're taking uh, the current unit of internet, which is sites, and we're breaking those down into two smaller units, uh, one called blocks, and then a smaller unit called the cell. Um, and the cool thing about blocks, 
is that, uh, you know, somebody like yourself could have an amazing navigation and Jeff could have a great footer and I might have an awesome hero. And because those pieces are atomic, we can actually share and remix and transfer those between each other's sites. So somebody like David, if he was spinning up a new site, you know, could have gone through this awesome feed of existing blocks and picked out all the right pieces to create exactly what they wanted and then uh, tweak those, you know, however they needed and published it um, and then done that in, in a communal environment. So you can collaborate and discuss with our uh, native chat experience and stuff like that all within the, uh, the actual build. Yeah. And I think that's half of what we've kind of built and ready to, you know, it's ready to go and people are using it and, and loving it. But I think when we start to look at blocks as a reusable unit on the internet, we start to get into like this ethos Clark and I have always had around ownership and kind of composability and, you know, even minting those original versions. So David launched his site. He did, you know, made a bunch of money selling his whatever, but now he's got all these really cool pieces, you know, these really cool blocks that are just now they're useless effectively. Um, and he also worked a lot of, why are they, wait, why are they useless? Because the site, uh, he, he did one sell. I think this example, I was using this puzzle that he sold. It sold in one day, and now the site's done. He's, he's not selling those anymore, right? Yeah, so I think, I think what Jeff's saying is like, we should be able to reuse this stuff, and other people should be able to reuse this stuff. And it comes back to that point you made at the beginning of uh, the podcast that you know, people, are, people have already created a lot of the things that you need, and there's a million versions of those things that you can riff and remix off of what exists. And so like that experience where there's tinkering and exploring and experimenting hasn't existed yet in the, in the website build process. So we're bringing that to the table um, and our community members are, are really the ones who are driving that, uh, which is a ton of fun to see them generate blocks and share them with each other. And, remix. and, and not to over cite David Dobrik here, just because it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a great, no, seriously, this is that, that's one of the best obvious examples because I think everyone in the audience has a very specific image here. So when you're talking about how he has he has this site, it's not going anywhere. Effectively, then, what you're saying is your, your company enables you to turn that into a template that other people could use. And so what does that have to do with owner? I guess, I guess that's where I'm just a little confused. Like where, where is the connection between building the site? It looks good. Other people want to use it. And the idea of ownership, which y'all have referenced a couple of times. Yeah, for sure. So we, we don't like to use the word templates. I think templates themselves are kind of killing creativity on the internet. Um, really, really what's going on is we're creating, you know, an even playing field for everyone to operate on. So for the people who are creators, who are the ones inventing the new site, that might be this David Dobrik site where you can sell this new puzzle. Um, you can still create anything you want from the ground up, build something super, super badass and powerful. But then once you create that, those pieces can be broken down into something a lot more digestible by somebody with a lower skill set and then use in a unique way to that to that person with the lower skill set. So really it's kind of like, um, like Jeff said earlier, an ecosystem where there's people with a higher skill set creating and people with a lower skill set curating or remixing. And that experience creates um, a lot more of a community oriented build, uh, build process. And when you're talking about owning, like 
you know, if David wanted to launch this site and, and sell out all these puzzles, wouldn't it be so cool if he could help 10,000 other people launch their own unique products based on the exact same formula that he put together um, and, you know, earn credit for doing that as well. And so what we're doing is we're actually assigning credit to people who are, who are creating Genesis blocks or the first version of a block. And it helps to create a lot of context around the internet. I mean, when you think about like who's building the sites, if you go to apple.com, there's no way for you to tell like who's working on it and what parts each person did. And it's kind of like the unwritten faces, unwritten names of, uh, you know, the underground of the internet. Yeah, exactly. And taking those blocks and saying, hey, Marshall, this is a great block. You can use it. My name is attached to it because I started uh, building it from scratch. And then as it moves down the line of people remixing it over and over again, I get that credit and I get that kind of uh, ownership feeling um, in the block itself. I want to take a quick side detour and get to something which is just referenced, which is the idea of these templates killing creativity on the internet. It'd be great to hear from you, both of you, obviously, your perspective on how how should people be creative and design their websites today? Obviously, there's not a formula because, once again, that's the opposite of what creativity is. But what should one's approach or framework be when you're thinking about how they should display themselves online, um, whether it's themselves or, or a company, especially using a tool where there's options like with the, the .com. Yeah, I mean, I think creativity really comes from having a lot of options and it also comes from the ability to play or experiment. And because that stuff doesn't exist in legacy tools, you find that it's really difficult to have any creativity because you can't touch everything and you can't tweak it and test it and see the changes live uh, in front of you. Instead, there's these weird processes where you have to go to inspect element or something else to go tweak it. And then you go back to the, the platform and refresh and see what happened. And the process itself kind of kills the motivation to be creative. It's not so much as that people aren't creative anymore. It's just, uh, it, it's such a large leap between where your idea is in your head and what's actually possible with some of these legacy tools. So I think, I think that's what's happening, but at the core of it, it's just about the ability to experiment and play around. And so when we talk about these new units of the internet, um, like blocks and cells, it's really about enabling people to, to dig deeper or dig as deep as they want. And, uh, and, you know, I think code is just a little bit too deep, like raw code. And so we're just trying to create a surface level of in between template and code. Something I'm wondering about is, is this a web two or a web three company? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. I think, I think it's pretty obvious that Jeff and I uh, see the .com as a web three company, um, you know, mostly because we've been thinking this way for a long time as web three has continued to gain traction. Like it's pretty, it's pretty clear that we're on the same wavelength. It's really nice to have a larger community feeling the same way that we do. But when we started down this road, we were excited about giving people ownership over the stuff they build. We were excited about creating a more community oriented experience. Uh, we were excited about the ability to like share and, and remix and have kind of like social interactions and in new ways. And I think as you see businesses like Facebook become meta.com, um, there's a lot of questions being asked, like what is the internet going to look like? 
And in order to answer those questions, you need a platform that lets you do what you want to do and create everything that you can think of. Um, and I think we haven't even seen, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what people are, are capable of. Yeah. Again, we just wanted to make this more of a framework. Like the .com takes a step back. Yeah. We helped you with this outside framework, like, um, that you can go in and you can edit any cell in any area of the site and work together with other people and collaborate and things like that. But I think from a web three perspective, like Clark said, it, it's all about ownership. It's all about having the community look at things um, and see and remix them and say, Hey, I like this thing. If I, if I changed it this much, could I get some credit for that as well? And together, you know, you build a better part of the internet uh, and in and outside of the dot com, honestly, um, Clark and I just listened to this great podcast with Chris Dixon on it. How he was talking about how look, everything's been built. If you go to GitHub, you can fork off these chunks of code that have already been pre-made for you. So there's a lot of wasted time and wasted energy in kind of the idea of rebuilding things over and over again. You've already built, and they're not really organized in a way with other legacy platforms that you can say, "Hey, I like Marshall's." homepage and I like the form he uses to get people to sign up for the deep end. If he did such a good job researching that, I'd love to use that, give him credit for it, social and monetary potentially, right? And then use that along the way and help my people understand uh, when they sign up that not only did I do a good job remixing this, but that Marshall had something to do with this as well. Could you speak to the monetary potential part there? So and maybe this isn't maybe this isn't built in yet, but how so what does it look like now on the platform and what are some different ways you could see that evolving either top down from yours end or from y'all's end, or just maybe organically bottom up? The way that our credit system works effectively, every time someone uses your form, your sign up form, you get credit for that use. We call it a remix and those credits will add up over time. And those credits will be equal to in the future, most likely a token, right. Or a portion of a token. Um, I think the real future of getting the ecosystem of these blocks out there, and you know, I don't want to just say the word DAO because it's such a hot topic right now, but because it can be a decentralized autonomous organization of people sharing, remixing, and using these blocks, they can create value. I mean, you are creating value. The hours that you might save someone on the form that you created could be worth not just thousands of dollars, but tens of thousands of dollars, depending on which people and groups you work with. So you're actually creating a ton of value. And right now you get zero credit for that. Something I'm wondering about, and this goes to the whole, is this web two, is this web three? You were building when the narrative was more web two focused, but if I'm thinking about my earliest web two social experience, it was probably transitioning from MySpace to Facebook. And what I remember everyone loved about Facebook, because this was actually a, a smart innovation at the time, is that MySpace just got really janky, right? Like everyone had, everyone learned how to use HTML with MySpace, and there were songs playing, and there was really bad, like there were bad GIFs there, and there was really off-putting, like weird pink-purple lettering, and then Facebook was just clean. Facebook was straightforward. It was kind of a template. So I think that's an interesting example of how when it comes to design and user experience, these things probably pendulum swing and maybe there's a world, hopefully a world where the two of you are being very successful or 20 years from now, someone <laughs> says, whoa, let's just have one thing. There's too much going on there. But how do you just think about how users experience 
at this weird Web 2, Web 3 intersection, these different design options when it comes to creativity and just form and function there? Yeah, I mean, there's this great uh, interview with uh, Peter Thiel where he talks about the pendulum of the, of the internet. And he talks about how in 1968, everyone was so afraid there was going to be one supercomputer in the middle of town that was going to control everything. And then in 1998, it swings back to MySpace and kind of an anarchistic approach to decentralization. Um, and then 2008 swings back to the centralized approach with Facebook, Twitter, things like that. Well, I think uh, today you're seeing it swing back pretty radically to the decentralized side. And now we have you know, an underlying framework, both at the.com for creating things on top of the internet, but also underneath with, uh, with blockchain and some other of the technologies that have been brought out in, in Web3. And I think that's really the stuff that's needed in order to create a great experience that's also decentralized. I also think it's a new era. Like I think we've spent enough time on these centralized platforms to understand how it works and how to be a good designer. We've got this giant set of tools in front of us that help you create and design in other, in other ways, like creating stories and stuff on Instagram um, in an easy way. And so I think, you know, a great example that we always say too, is like, if you look at people's early Instagram, it's clear they had no idea how to brand themselves or tell a story or edit a photo. And then you scroll up to the, to the newest photos and it's, it's super clear that they've got a really good grasp on it. So I think that is, is a great showcase of like the, the headspace that a lot of people are in. And uh, I think we're all ready to have complete autonomy over the way we tell our stories, what that looks like, the design of it, who we're collaborating with. And it's, it's about time that we're able to do that. Something I want to really highlight about the two of you is I really legitimately am excited about the fact that you started building this in 2019. So there was no vibey Twitter discourse around all this. For, right, well, because like you're, you're using the buzzwords, but you're using them in a backwards looking way, which is really important. So you didn't just wake up two weeks ago and say, hey, minting, remix, ownership, basically all these terms. Yeah. They're good terms for a reason, but you already were building something given the implications of the ideas you are talking about. So I want to compliment you on that. That's, that's very important. A lot of people now that we're moving a little further into the Web3 discourse, have a lot of complaints. And increasingly, we're more comfortable uttering these complaints, which is a lot of folks who are building the space are heavy on the jargon and the buzzwords and the vibes, but they're weak on, but wait, like, what does this actually do that's superior to a legacy experience? So frankly, and you're just starting out here, but I think it really matters. As people who kind of went the opposite direction by default, what would you advise founders, builders, thinkers who are looking at this Web3 space and are having to balance, look, we want to get term sheets, we want to build something cool, but actually we need to actually do something that's yeah. meaningful. How, how? What's your advice from that perspective? I mean, I think Clark and I get asked this question a lot and we're always kind of leaning towards find the problem or the, the thing that's bugged you personally and that you've seen the frustrations in like maybe even years of experience. Cause I don't think anyone who just sits down at a computer, not that it can't be done obviously, but sits down at a computer one day and goes, let me think of 10 ideas and I'll choose the best one. That sounds like it might make the most money um, or might get the term sheet the fastest. I think everyone has like a, something that they love doing every day. And usually in that space, there's something that can be upgraded or fixed, especially when you put like a Web3 context on it. I think 
Clark and I have just been bouncing off the walls with like, oh, there could be Web3 this, there could be Web3 that. And I think it's going to disrupt an incredible amount of, of industries. Yeah, I mean, we were talking with one of our investors the other day about this. And it's so interesting because like through Web3, you can kind of reinvent anything right now. So it seems like there's all this opportunity, right? Like I could create the same thing that's already been done, but Web3. And I think tacking that on in the end is super lazy. You know, when we were starting the business, like we obviously had a utopia type dream for how we'd want the ethos of the company to be and, and, the, and the culture and everything. But it's important to pick that stuff early and stay true to it. There's plenty of times early on, especially working on, on a product um, that's so functionality heavy, where we didn't put a lot of effort into design upfront, where people, people that we were pitching were not interested in what we're doing. And there's a lot of friction around people being like, ah, I don't really get it. I mean, even in, even in you know, one of our main decks, we talked about the next era of the internet is about ownership. And that didn't click at all with a lot of investors, but it was really clicking with the, the, the customers that we were letting onto the platform. So we're like, okay, we're obviously doing something that's exciting people. And it's probably because we just built the thing that we needed. And they're also the same type of people that we are. Um, and so we were getting a lot of our energy from the customers, not so much from investors or from the hype that was happening in the news. Um, but I also think, you know, being natural contrarians, like you kind of want to go against what the main thing was at the time um, and build something for the people and something that, you know, amplifies the, the skill set of somebody who's, you know, the nobody or the low, the, 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 the entry level person. Um, and, you know, when we were when we were a services business, we worked with a lot of small businesses and we loved helping the coffee shop down the street, like build an incredible website because it changed their whole life. And we're like addicted to the feeling of changing the power dynamic of not having to go to some huge software company and pay a hundred thousand dollars to build something incredible. Um, and that was really like the spark that sent us down this path, but you got to pick this stuff early. You got to stay true to it. Um, and you got to set kind of set those rules for yourself. I think. I'm really curious, given what you just said, when about did the idea and the more web three adjacent concepts here, like ownership start to make more sense on the investor side. That's a funny, there's a funny way you could definitely tell the story where there's a, maybe a metric of when does the discourse start to become, so So this is interesting. To your point about being contrarian, 2019 contrarian, but there's probably a moment like mid, I'm not gonna guess the time, but there's this weird <laughs> moment where it just totally swings. I'm curious how that felt or when you think that was about. Honestly, I have to say it's pretty recent. We had the words Web3 in our deck over a year ago uh, for the raise that we were working on. And only in the last six months, I would say, do people immediately think, wait a second, if you could own part of the, your part of the ecosystem and allow others to share it while still getting credit for that, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It, I wouldn't say it was like a specific time, but there's a ton of energy right now around it. And so that's felt really good. Um, but it's, it's been kind of like a slow progression as the huge pendulum starts to swing back to decentralization. I think um, every time 
you know, we met with the next person or got a beer with this other guy. It became more and more clear that people were starting to get it. And so we just kept pressing on it and pressing on it. And, you know, we saw the light at the end of the tunnel, I think, mostly because it just aligned with who we were as people as well. And so it was easy for us to do that. It wasn't like we were faking who we were, but it, yeah. it's a really good question. I don't think there is a specific, a specific day or week that that happened. <laughs> There's definitely a services business telling founders when the vibe is shifting, uh, get in, you know, sell some equity that way. Something I'm curious about in we're using words like remix, we're, you know, talking about collaboration. It's very clear. People like Jared Dicker at TCG are great about talking about this, but there's this increasingly clear music cultural inf influence on yeah. a lot of these web three spaces. It's, 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 it's actually pretty interesting. There are a lot of folks like Cooper Turley who like actually come from like the journalism, um, music industry background. I'm, I'm curious how, how the, how the two of you think culture is really interacting with these web three spaces, because if you're looking at web two, you're, you're noticing that it's just very separate. Um, everything Mark Zuckerberg's doing is separate. People dress differently. I don't know if you all have noticed this, but people in a lot of these spaces have been dressing a lot better. Um, I'm an East Coast yeah. outsider to the tech space, so a lot of people might not notice this, but I just clearly notice maybe oh, yeah. it's a pandemic bias. People <laughs> just started dressing so much better. And I think that's because in a weird way, as tech becomes more culture and culture becomes more tech, it means that you can't just be, well, I'm my own thing and this plain V-neck that looks terrible. That, that, <laughs> that doesn't work as much. I'm curious how the two of you think about that. I mean, culture is such a center point of, of what we're trying to build. I think as culture moves to be a, a more digital experience, things like that are going to happen a lot. People dressing a lot better. Um, we're huge fans of music, grew up listening to tons of music. I think even more recently, um, with artists like Baby Keem or Kanye releasing versions of their album that aren't finished or versions of their album that they change later. Just like another indication that the rules need to be broken, the algorithm needs to be broken. Um, and as you see that happen more and more, I think people are kind of like looking at each other thinking, okay, well, if, if you can do that, then maybe I can start breaking some of the rules too. Um, and I think we needed those rules to get us to where we're at today. We needed some of those small boxes, the, the character limits and the, temp the templates. Um, but we're trained now and we're ready to kind of be released back out into the wild. Um, and I think that's where you, you're going to see a huge explosion in culture. Um, and it's something I'm really excited to be a part of, but more so to be like a student of. Yeah, and to your specific point of people actually dressing better, I think what's happened and what we're trying to accomplish with the .com is to show the little guy the like you can also have a big voice and you can also contribute and be seen. And like when you're seen, you actually want to dress well, you know, versus maybe at Facebook, I've only heard of one person who works there, Mark. I don't know anyone else's name that works there. Uh, and so those people who are lower... Uh, below him might want to say like, Hey, look, I contribute a lot to this platform and therefore like I might be in the public eye more. And I think that's just, again, like we talked about earlier, coming from something like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and creating your own Marshall.com or your own, your own website, you're creating a brand experience for yourself. And so you actually want to look the part you want to dress for uh, the old adage, dress for success or dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Right. I think that the last presidential election also made the topic really, really popular about deplatforming, what that looks like. 
Um, I think whether anyone agrees with one side or the other, um, the fact that people can have a voice that they control themselves is super, super interesting over being on a platform that they might be uh, tied to. You know, I'm an advisor for another company uh, who primarily uses Instagram to talk about what they're doing. And the day Instagram goes down, they can't communicate with any of their customers. And um, so, you know, I think as we see a shift away from some of these centralized companies to meet more decentralized, there's going to be a lot more digital culture happening and uh, digital culture happens when you can experiment and play around like we were talking about earlier. Um, so, you know, like when you see talking about dressing stuff and you see somebody throw a pair of white sneakers on with a suit, like, and that kind of breaks the way you think about fashion, it's an experiment, it's playfulness. And I think that's what's really exploded a lot in the last couple of years with, with design and fashion. And I think that's going to happen digitally. Man, I, I love the Facebook example with Mark Zuckerberg that you gave, because you're helping put into words a phenomenon that's very apparent in a lot of these Web3 communities and ecosystems, because think about early Facebook, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg wrote a lot of the code. He actually put at the bottom of the big blue page, like a Mark Zuckerberg production. And given what you're talking about with the.com, it basically means that from an implications perspective, everything is going to be a X person's production. And that's going to be by definition there when that just wasn't a thing. And as I'm thinking about a lot of these web three companies, I'm realizing I know a lot more lower level people, quote unquote, than you would in any typical situation. So it's just an example of it to a certain degree. I'm imagining a world where technical folks are actually going to demand more actual ability to build out their resume and their portfolio in a way like that. So it's just interesting that you have a platform that has the ability to integrate those type of things. I'm just curious to just get more thoughts with you on the implications of like the, because something you're also doing very well here is that you're translating the the buzzword of ownership into something like actually very tangible for folks. But we would just love your response and your thoughts on this. It's funny that you bring that uh, masthead up from Facebook because it's a great example. I don't think we'd actually thought of that yet. But in the platform itself, we are making sure that everyone who contributes to a block or creates a block gets full credit for that. And we plan to show that on the front end somehow uh, of every site that gets published using the .com. So whether that's forward slash credit or forward slash the person's actual name, inside uh, the .com, you can go follow Marshall's account on there, his, his profile. I think it's crazy that if I'm trying to hire like a website creator that I have to request some type of portfolio or even worse resume to see the work that they've done. It should be really obvious. Like here's all the stuff you can go look at it. It's on the internet. So you should be able to find it on the internet very easily. Um, and we're really excited about providing context to the web. I think it's one of the things that's been missing uh, for a long time. And Jeff was teasing a little bit uh, a minute ago about one of the features that we're planning on dropping relatively soon um, that kind of swaps the concept that used to exist with legacy platforms where it's say built on Wix or built on Squarespace or whatever it is, um, but would actually be built by the people um, that worked on it instead of the company that it was uh, created on. So I, I think there's a lot of fun stuff we can do that we are doing. And, you know, one of our, one of our things that we're starting to do is just creating regular drops. So new features coming out all the time, um, kind of trying to push the limits always that everything's always a work in progress. Um, so we're never going to really 
release and just be the way that it is. It's kind of, you know, it's one huge experiment. So we're just trying a lot of stuff and trying to, trying to make the things that would have made us happy. Speaking of experience, got last few questions here, but you've been running this platform for a while. Obviously you've, you know, you've, you've come out of semi, I wouldn't call it stealth, but it's, 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 it's semi stealth. What are some good case studies or examples, user behaviors that really just come up that you've come across that you really think would be helpful to highlight people who are looking for a strong mental picture of what y'all are building here? We're definitely creating a lot of new web building behaviors that haven't existed before, like uh, the ability to create blocks and remix those and share those with other people. So obviously that's super exciting. Uh, but there's some some things that we're releasing or have released around the act of making that are really exciting as well. Like one of our favorites is versioning. The fact that I could fork off a page that I've created an unlimited amount of times and be able to switch in between those instantly and deploy them instantly just, you know, enables you, if you're a D2C brand, like you could plan out all of your launches for the next year, build out all of those pages and then instantly switch between them and launch them when you want. Or maybe you just want to, don't, you don't want to screw up something that exists. So you fork off a page to try and experiment or play around. Um, and so that we're really excited about, um, you know, because the platform set up in a Quick cell. Thing. Could you, could you explain what forking means? Yeah, uh, like, like like contextualize what forking means, given it's a, a web a page, yeah, or a so blocker or whatever word you want to use to describe it. Forking, we call it versioning. Um, just enables you to really make a duplicate of the existing uh, design and structure, and then you can instantly move between those versions back and forth. So, like if Marshall.com uh, had a certain layout for the homepage and you wanted to add a form onto that, you could just create a version and start tweaking uh, your new form that you're adding into there and still not lose any of the work that you had previously. So one of the things you'll see in, in legacy platforms is uh, I'll start editing a page and that page will differ from the one that uh, exists as a published version, right? So like the edited version is different than the published version. And then somebody says, oh wait, I actually need you to change that one thing on the published version. Um, but now I've overwritten all this stuff and I can't quite go back and you get caught in this weird feedback loop um, where there's not, um, you know, additional versions of the page. So that's, that's one of the things that we're really excited about. Um, and it's something that uh, none of the other platforms are, are really doing right now. So the obvious question, the one needs to ask, and you all set this up when it came to web two and legacy players any web three company effectively has to answer this question. Why can't a web two, or even given how old the space is, how like a web 1.0 <laughs> legacy company, why can't they just do what you're doing? Because if you think of like Instagram and Facebook, the reason why they can't just do it is their whole thing is that they are centralized platforms. So the web three ethos in many ways is locks them out of a lot of what they're trying to do there. So why, why does that apply? Or maybe it doesn't apply to the same great degree to the space that y'all are building in. No, it definitely applies. Uh, and I think we can say that at the .com because we built it, like we mentioned before, as a framework. So it's more built around the idea of breaking websites down into their individual units. And that allows many different people to put them together like Lego. Right. Um, and I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the, the fact that stuff can be broken down into these cells means that things click back together easily. 
And I think that's an important distinction that's very different than some of these existing platforms. The other thing you'll see with uh, a legacy platform is in order to make it the way you really want it, uh, if you have the skills, you'll tweak the raw HTML or CSS of that thing. You'll see that happen, happening a lot on, on kind of earlier drag and drop stuff. And that makes it really difficult to integrate with others, uh, with other platforms who wanted to switch things around or, or trade or share a remix. So, you know, the, the cell-based approach really enables that to happen. It makes that process super easy and, and seamless. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say like it's probably as difficult to do as, as Twitter or, or Instagram moving to a decentralized approach. But I mean, it, it took us years and we've had a full team working 24-7 on it. Um, so, And for the last question to take us out here, it's very clear that the the two of you have not employed a building in public model when it <laughs> comes to the.com. It's, it's, it's funny when, when, when I said I was doing this episode, people were like, Oh yeah, like cool people don't really know what they're up to to the same degree versus a lot of folks, especially in the web three spaces are very publicly. Some would argue maybe a little too publicly given how nascent what they're working on is talking up what they're doing. So how did you to think about this? Did this come down to launching in 2019 when that was less, less fashionable? How, how have you two thought about that part of the process? Cause I think a lot of people, if they're honest with themselves, see both sides of these types of arguments and don't quite know where they actually stand. Yeah, I mean, I think we're the type of people that want the product to speak for itself um, versus us being the cheerleaders for it. And so it was important for us to get the product to a point where we felt comfortable doing that first. Um, but we also, you know, really look up to people who've done this well in the past, whether that's from a physical product or a digital product standpoint. And we've got some advisors, like one of our advisors was the guy who pretty much invented the Apple store. And Apple was there for 11 years. And he made it pretty clear that, it's important, more important to be focusing on the product and uh, let your customers do, do the cheerleading for you um, versus kind of doing that yourself. And I think, you know, when you, when you take that same amount of energy that you would blasting off on Twitter and you put that into actually working on the product, I think, you know, the outcome is going to be 10x. So that's just the way we've, we've approached it. I think other people probably approach it completely differently and are probably wildly more successful than we are, but that's the approach that fits with us personally. And it just also happens to kind of be like that, that web three type of vibe. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just different strokes for different folks, I guess. Yeah, honestly, we, also take customer feedback and loop that into the product so frequently, sometimes on a daily basis, uh, that we just could never really talk about it so much because it changed every day. Um, and we weren't really out there on our website back, you know, in the last year or two to actually show the product itself or even talk a ton about what it did. And that's because it literally changed on a day-to-day -day basis. So we weren't trying to be like, Hey, it does this. And then three days later, be like, Oh, I guess we're gonna have to change that and come back and tell everyone that what we told them it used to do, it doesn't do anymore. So. Yeah. Like if you go to our site, you'll see that we post a lot of the drops, the feature drops that we do and bug fixes and stuff. And it's partially because I think it's a ton of fun for our customers to be able to see that in kind of real time. Um, but also I think it sets the tone for like who we're focused on. It's about the community and we're community first here at the.com. And, that's, that's way more important to us than 
a bunch of empty words. And, and it's about the continuous. Uh, yeah, it's about being a continuous work in progress. Yeah, and we believe the whole internet is set up that way. We believe our company is set up that way. I think we're going to look a lot different than we do uh, today, two years from now or a year from now even. And I think the whole internet is going to look a hell of a lot different. Great place to end, given that that is entirely true. So congrats. This um, Everything dropped yesterday. We're obviously airing this episode on a Wednesday, but where where should where should people go? I mean, it's very clear where they should go, the.com. <laughs> See? <laughs> that answers uh, the question at the start of the podcast. But yeah, so is this is, should you contact your web developer? Should you contact your agency? Like, what What is the next step for folks, frankly, like me, who need a next step when it comes to websites and the way these frameworks actually work? Yeah, I mean, if you're a person who's building a website and you have any website skill, a website building skill, you should come to the .com, sign up, and uh, you know, come check it out. There's a, a small like sign up process to go through. I think if you're the type of company where you work with somebody else to to build on your site, definitely send them the URL or, or ask them to go check it out. Um, you know, we're we're working on making things really easy to move over from existing sites as well. If people are trying to uh, to move from a legacy platform. So, um, you know, the fun thing about the platform is we've got chat natively baked in. So you can just message one of us and ask, uh, how easy it is to get your site over or work on something. We'll be able to answer for you. Yeah. And like Clark said, all those types of creators we're inviting to join the platform right now. Um, and if you're more of a U Marshall or a curator type person, um, the creators are, are kind of building up that arsenal of blocks and getting credit for them and getting, you know, all the extras we talked about on the podcast about, and then we'll be letting in all the curator people to use those blocks uh, in the very near future. Yeah. Yeah. We're calling this phase one. So this is like the creator launch and then we'll be doing the remixer launch relatively soon once we hit our block, our number of blocks uh, that we have set for a goal. That's awesome. Well, congratulations to the two of you. This has been a great conversation and best of luck. Thanks, Marshall. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.